Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, looky, 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 you find yourselves back at Making Data Simple, the Making Data Simple podcast. Due to the confusion I always have in my head, uh, I make data look really, really simple. So that's what we're going to do today. I am here with Mark Van Name, who's a co-founder of Principal Technologies. He describes himself as a technologist, a marketer, a writer, and a spoken word performer. And don't worry, we're going to get into that because I got to figure out what a spoken word performer is. I could use some education there. He started Principal Technologies, and I presume that's opposed to a non-Principal Technologies, which, Mark, this day and age, you may get better publicity with non-Principal Technologies. Something to think think about. No, he started Principal Technologies in 2003. His simple existence statement is to do great work for our clients and to be a great place to work for our staff. Right. Awesome. I think another way to describe the company is he makes sure companies have the technology that works and make sure it adequately competes in the market and how to articulate the competitive advantage in marketing terms. Welcome, Mark. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Al and Kate. Why don't you take the time to describe your bio to us? Sure. I've been in technology my entire career. I started by hacking computers, uh, not on the legal side of things when I was young. I think statute of limitations has gone there, so I'm good on that. <laughs> wow. We may have to have our own podcast just on that. Keep going. I, I got into programming early. I was a double major psych and math early in college, and then I took a programming course, and I went, whoa, this is fun, and they pay better. Because a double major psych and math is not the best path for career usually. I mean, plenty of people do well, but I I had a long future of low income ahead of me in my view. So I started getting into computer science, uh, started my first company when I was 25, have started and grown and sold and companies or divisions of big companies since then. And also always had a passion for writing. For a while, I was a technology journalist uh, with my business co-owner, Bill Catchings. We published around 1,500 bylines in the height of the tech press days. He and I co-wrote a computer book, and I have published five novels, about 60 essays of various sorts, and uh, edited five anthologies. And then the final passion is I've always had trouble shutting up. My mother said loquacious was the kind term, and a blabbermouth was more accurate, And so I got interested in stand-up comedy, but not of the one-line joke variety, more the telling a story that's funny. And so I wrote a one-man show called Science Magic Sex and performed that show a few times. And I've written, I think, four more since then. And I stand up, tell stories, make people laugh, and don't get to do that very often. And since COVID, haven't done that at all, but that's just another side of myself that's fun to play with. Oh my goodness. Where do I start? Where do I start? Hey, Mark, I know where I'm going to start. Here's your time right now during COVID. Give us a story. You got to give one. You got one off the top of your head, don't you? Honestly, my biggest reaction to COVID isn't a story. It is profound gratitude. It is the realization every day that I am so lucky. I look at the people who've taken care of me, who don't know, people who've delivered groceries, kept uh, front lines working, all the responders, all the people that have done so much. And I think I am incredibly grateful and incredibly lucky and I think that every day, you know, it's it dwarfs any story. Now, the closest to a real story is COVID gave me the chance to be at home more. I used to spend 60 plus percent of my time on the road. So being at home, one day I said, you know, all those excuses you have for not losing weight, they don't really <laughs> hold anymore. You're not having business dinners four days a week and you're not eating plain food and rushing between airports. And so June 1st of 2020, I said, my excuses are out. It's time to do something about this. And I've dropped 57 pounds since then. And wow. still have a long way to go. Still consider myself fat. Um, but 
much better. Congratulations. Health is better and everything about life is better. So I am not only grateful for all the people who have taken care of me, I'm grateful for the chance to be able to work from home and get in better health. So what is a spoken word performer? Stand up on a stage with a microphone, tell some stories and hope people laugh. It's uh, basically stand up comedy, but with slightly longer stories. Uh, I'll give you an example. I, I talk a lot about my mother who is uh, dead now for 10 years, 11 years. Sorry. And it's terrible. I don't remember exactly the count and uh, was very influential. I was raised just by her no men around. And she was a powerful influence and, and taught me almost everything good that I know. But at the same time, she was a challenging person. And so my mother left me with all of these zingers that were just incredibly self-destructive. Here's an example. Ninth grade, I asked a girl to the dance. Ninth grade, where I grew up in Florida, was still middle school. So this was the end of middle school. I asked this girl, I remember her name was Renee. I asked her to the dance. I was the 13th boy to ask her. I had no self-image confidence, no belief she would go with me. And what she said when I asked her was a Friday. She said, well, a number of people have asked me. I'm going to think about it over the weekend, and I'll let you know Monday. Thank you for asking. She was unbelievably polished. And as I think women are perpetually throughout our lives, way ahead of men. And so (laughs) she came back Monday and I saw her in the hall and she started to speak and I said, Oh, it's okay. It's all right. I don't mind if you don't go. She said, no, I would like to go with you. I'd like to accept your invitation. I was like, really? (laughs) Why? But I didn't ask that. So on the night of the event, I get dressed in the de rigueur powder blue tux of that era, uh, come down with a corsage. I stand there. I am incredibly nervous. And I asked my mother, how do I look, mom? And she comes up to me and she puts a hand on my cheek. My mother was five feet tall, so I was already towering over her. She looks up into my eyes and she says, don't worry, dear. As girls get older, they value brains more than looks. <laughs> now, okay, so that is what I want from your reaction. That is a completely true story and that's spoken word and also comedy. And the horrible, horrible part about it is, of course, she is correct. She is correct. I oh, have never God. been known for my good looks. I certainly wasn't then. I, she allowed no hair. I had to have a crew cut. I was the, one of two boys in my school with a crew cut. Everyone else had the hair of that year. I had a crew cut. And she was right. She was right. But well, I, it I was not recovered. good for my self-image. <laughs> Sounds like you recovered. Well, I did give poor Renee the absolute worst date of her life. It remains the worst date of my life and and a source of great embarrassment. But part of what I try to do is pick on myself or my mother in my show. And I have plenty of things. Two of my shows begin with the title Mr. Poor Choices. And one of the tour shirts has on it a list of like 13 stupid things no one would ever do. And 10 of them are checked because I did. Very good. Very good. All right. So let's see if I can transition from that. That's a little bit tough. Awesome. So principal technology, what do you do, man? So we are a combination testing house and agency at core. And we started PT with this really simple and yet apparently radical concept, which is that the very best way to sell products is to tell the truth. What we do is for a who's who of tech vendors. They hire us to look at their products. We take them into our data centers or testing areas if need be. We work with them in the cloud if that's appropriate. And we compare them sometimes internally to dream lists, sometimes just evaluate them against the market as a whole privately, uh, most frequently in public reports against competitors. And we provide the facts that help buyers make really good decisions. This is things or facts that they cannot do for themselves? No, they absolutely could. It's So there's an interesting thing. When you want to make a claim, let's say you work, uh, I'll pick a company we don't work with, McDonald's. You work at McDonald's and you want to claim that you have the best new pork burger. You could just make the claim, count on your branding, 
and that's an effective way. Brand certainly matters. You could test it internally. You could talk to users, but that's tricky with new products. Or you could hire a group to do an evaluation. We're in the last category. We do evaluation. So if a company is launching a new set of uh, servers, we might compare them. There is a big question, a huge question underlying what we do, and it is, why should we trust you? If you're a buyer and you know we disclose that we were paid to do something by a company, why should you ever trust us? And there are two answers. The first answer is, don't trust us. Verify. From the beginning, for every single study we've ever done, we publish all of what we did. The full recipe, the cookbook. If you have the expertise, the hardware, software to do it, you can replicate what we do. So you don't have to trust, you can verify. But the second thing is, we always address the three big issues in any kind of claim, which are audience, usage model, and context. So to give you an example why those are so important, an easy example, what's the best car? It's impossible to answer that question without context. So the best car when I had young kids for our lifestyle and friends was a minivan, without a doubt. I don't regret it for a minute. I was never embarrassed to be in the minivan, minivan brigade because it's so useful. Your kids, their friends, no problem. Today, I drive a Tesla. I love the Tesla, but I can afford the Tesla. What is your budget? What is your target usage? Are you commuting? Are you long distance driving? How many people are you trying to carry? Uh, I have a guy I work with who's based in Austin. He's a hunter. He has a big truck. He will routinely throw a carcass in the back of his truck and needs to be able to hose it down. I have no interest in a dead animal carcass in the back of my Tesla. <laughs> you know, I'm just not that ambitious on the cleaning front. So, Usage matters. So whenever we do studies, we talk about the particular audiences, the particular usage models, and all of those other factors to contextualize it, because you can't make a smart buying choice without context. So it's audience, usage model, and context. Yep. Since you open up your the, the secret sauce to, it, it's kind of like an AI, you know, we open up the black box in the name of transparency. So you can say, look, there's no magic here. This is just data science. Uh, it's computer science. It's not black magic or anything else like that. People can believe and they know, you know, can measure bias and everything else like that. In your world, you're doing much the same. You're opening it up. So you can say, look, we're going to give you an honest approach. So you know that we're coming to you. We're coming from a place of integrity. Hence the name when I was joking at first, but hence the name principal technologies. Absolutely. We, believe that by doing this, we risk one thing, we potentially give away IP. But here is a beautiful fact about that. And I would argue the entire world, not just the tech world, runs on tech improvement as an economic engine. We need, all of us in the economy, in the world, we need to keep making our tech better. We're hooked. We do not want to backslide. And so we are constantly changing the technology, changing the usage models. Think about your day today and think about your day in 1992, 30 years ago. I think you were both alive 30 years ago. So I Of course. It. Well, Kate, I'm not so sure, but yeah. I I'm, not, I'm not positive with Kate, but I, you know, <laughs> so you think about your day, you think 20 years ago, 20 years ago, there was no iPhone, no Android phone. What did the, we do? That's right. what I, I can't figure out what we models. did. <laughs> are unbelievably different. And we are better. We're doing this podcast. We're recording. We're staring at each other in video that made it possible to get through COVID. Imagine the economic impact on the tech world in COVID in 1995. I, I don't know what would have happened. It, it would be disastrous. And it, it's not that it hasn't been horrible here, but it has been so much better. And so the constant evolution of the technology, the constant need for better and newer technologies means that what we did 18 months ago is already old and we're constantly reinventing. And I love that. I, I do not want to be bored. I'm not a guy who gets bored. There's always something new in the world to do. And with tech, you know, you're constantly facing new challenges. It's a wonderful thing. 
the interesting thing to me, it still makes me a little nervous. You got to say a little bit more about the brand you have on integrity. You're right. You can sell your IP. And I'm sure there's customers out there that says, look, yeah, sure. I could get Mark to do this, but I can do this. Why do I want to spend that kind of money? I could do this, say some cash. I already know what he's going to be doing anyway. And on top of that, like being an investor, I look at, there's four M's I always consider in investing. Meaning, does the business have meaning to me? What's the management like? What the moat is, the differentiation or the, uh, I don't know what their secret sauce is that nobody else has. And then I buy on a margin of safety. If I go back to moat, what's your moat then? Quite a few things. So first of all, what we do, comparing products, having expertise across a broad range of technologies, being able to quickly set up and fairly compare is a specialized expertise. It is something companies certainly can do and some companies do, but what they can't do is be a third party. When you are trying to prove something, you can put up a chart that you did and your engineers did, but having a third party that completely divulges what it did is apparently, at least from being in our 20th year, quite valuable to a lot of companies. The moat is that expertise. But it is also the fact that we have to explain it and we have to deliver it as marketing collateral. So we have, going on 100 people, we have a big technical team, we have a development team, and we have a huge, what we call our studio team or agency on the inside. These people all work together. They were in two floors of a building. Now they're all connected electronically. And they sit in the same meetings together. From the beginning of a project, we will have not just the technologists who understand the various technologies in the products, but we will have graphic designers, we'll have writers, videographers. They will all be there, all with the purpose of telling the story in the best possible way. Early on in our career, we didn't have that you know, in the PT career. We, we just had the testing side. So we would deliver the test facts and then our clients would have to go and take a quarter and turn it into marketing. The ROI of any marketing claim is its value times its duration in the marketplace. And if you look at how you improve things, you make the claims stronger, but you get them to market faster. If we handed a great result to a client and they spent another quarter with an ad agency turning it into good marketing collateral, we take that and we do that all in-house. So we have a tech-enabled marketing business with a huge library of methodologies and expertise, a trained staff, and we also have, as part of our moat, a huge retention because the other part of PT is we started it as a social experiment, not just a business. We started PT with the idea that we would rethink all aspects of business, hence our existence statement instead of a mission statement, and hence many of our practices, uh, such as we don't have titles, we don't have an org chart. Wow. We, so, we uh, boy, you. man, we could, we, could, <laughs> we could talk for a while. All right. I'll get back to that. But tell me how you did start it. I mean, what got into you and said, hey, there is a gap here. There's an offering that doesn't exist today that I can fill. Bill and I, co-founder, go back to 1985. We've been working together uh, far longer than a, the majority of our company has been alive. And we made our living for a long time, uh, multiple years as journalists who, in the tech press, compared products. We went to work for a media company, Ziff Davis. When we had been columnists, they brought us on board as exclusive properties. And then eventually they made us a job offer that we decided we couldn't refuse. And in the course of being there, I became executive vice president inside Ziff Davis during its heyday. I was in charge of all the central technology assets. And I created this kind of testing business inside it. And then seeing the writing on the wall that the tech business was, uh, you know, the tech media business was going down, right? In the late uh, 90s, early 2000s, it was clear that was happening. I worked with our attorneys. I packaged up the tech assets into a separate company. And when the CEO called me to his office and said, I want you to lay off a third of your staff, I said, no. And he was like, what? You, you can't say no. I said, no, that's dumb. Sell it. And he said, what do you mean? I said, it's already packaged as a subsidiary. It's already set. Here are three potential buyers that I've identified. Sell it. You look good. You protect the people. 
you make some cash. And he was like, okay. So a few months later, we sold it. I went with that. You didn't buy it, did you? You didn't, no. you weren't the, you weren't the. <laughs> no, I was not. There wasn't that kind of game of ship. There was a company that had been trying to hire me to run their similar business for a long time. We sold to them, but we ended up having philosophical disagreements. And so after a few months I left there, Bill and I said, we're taking a month off. This was November of 2002. We're going to go take a month off. We're not going to think about work. We're just going to clear our heads. I went on my first plane trip without a laptop in since before or since. And we got back together first week of December and said, what do we want to do? And we said, we're going to start this little thing. And we said, it'll be fun. We identify a market opportunity of about $5 million. We think through our name recognition and knowledge, we can get to 40% of that. We can have a nice little business. It'll be fun while we figure out the next thing. Now we're, you know, don't disclose our revenue, but rather dramatically bigger and the market opportunity we have grown and we're still doing this and we still like it. So that's how we got going. Did you find that, look, there wasn't, you know, you got consumer reports what else do you have out there that really is a third party? I mean, at the time, what was what, what was your competitor? Did you say, hey, there really wasn't a competitor that could be a third party or provide a third party assessment, turn data, verify and validate data that a company was claiming and then turn it into marketing? Was that a gap that you said, hey, this is where we need to fill because we don't see it existing today? So there were companies doing it. Um, Veritest was a company that was doing it. There were a number of now defunct businesses. Uh, one that started a few years later that we bought called DeMartech. But I want to emphasize, we don't verify what companies know most of the time. Most of the time, they don't know their competitive advantages. They have a good sense of it, but we actually go find it. Companies will come to us and say, you know, we think we're better at A, B, and C, and we will go test and find out. We need to focus the marketing on A and B, not so much on C. So you validate suspicions almost. It's like, I think that we're good at this. Tell me if I'm right. Somewhat. We validate beliefs. And actually what we do is we give them the facts to back it up. It's an interesting thing. Everybody's baby is prettier to them. It's just how it is. And as a former software developer, I know one of my lifetime rules for software development is the person or people who wrote it can never test it. They are the wrong people. They're too <laughs> close to it. They it's already forgive it, all its problems. So the same is true of any tech product. The best people to test it are people who aren't inside it. That makes sense. So I've got so many questions, Ben. I'm going to take a step back because you said no titles. How do you operate? Well, let's talk about a little bit your operation because it would seem to be a bit unique. It is unusual, to put it mildly. So the first thing, before we had the term, we thought of it as a dynamic staffing model. Now we explain it basically as, think of it as a cloud-based staffing model. We bring in the right resources for just the right amount of time, and then we move them off to other projects. So people are constantly moving in and out of projects. Over time, what has happened is we've grown a sort of shadow organization. We have eight people in the company that we call the leader group. And they each are leaders looking over an area. Bill and I and our CEO look over the whole company. And then we have leaders for the different areas. That group emerged. We don't believe in hiring leaders. We believe in hiring people. When we hire people from traditional big companies and they say, well, how will people know I'm a leader? We go, it's not their job to know you're a leader. It's your job to lead. And you'll know you're a leader when people are following you. And this is very puzzling for people from many companies because they're like, I need a title. I need a budget. And here's the thing about titles and budgets. They're boxes. They put boxes around you. They tell you what you can't do. So we have, uh, I'll pick a, a woman, I uh, won't name, but a woman in our support team. She works in our sales support. She also does photography. She also has helped with videos. We have graphic designers who do voiceovers. 
who have helped run user tests. We have all sorts of people contributing in ways that are unique to them, that take advantage of their passions, and that titles would box them in from doing. How do you set objectives, expectations, and perform performance management? We have a sort of dynamically matrix thing. We have a set of people who are project managers. We didn't do that for the longest time. We used the technical or studio people, but now we do have project managers because we've grown to the size where we need that. The project managers, the leaders, and colleagues help contribute to performance reviews. We do triannual performance reviews, and we have a set of rules for who sits in on that. We solicit input. We do The leader team sits down every month and reviews the, everyone in the company and talks about how they're doing to make sure that we are giving that personal touch. And we have a bunch of mechanisms like that to make sure. We solicit input for that monthly staff review from everyone. Have you ever had to reduce resources because of lack of work or a reduction in work for some reason? Yes, is the short answer. Once. Broke our heart. Two years ago, a very small number of people, uh, height of COVID, difficult time. Uh, but only once. We do, however, fire people who do not work. We have an employee statement. It's We wrote a book, Bill and I, called Limit Your Greed that is about our philosophies and, and doing this business. And we have this one sentence belief that we use to guide us in dealing with everybody in the company. And in every single word in it matters. We believe employees are well-intentioned, responsible adults who want to do good work. If you are that, you will thrive at PT. If you are not that, probably slower than we should, we will discover that, and then you will not be at PT. Well-intentioned, responsible adults wanting to do good work. Who want to do good work. That's your litmus test. They don't achieve that. There's a performance discussion and action could be taken. And, and a, yeah, and a long time in coming. We do not do things quickly because we have seen too many cases where we can work with people and help them find their way. And our organization can be confusing to people. When you're expecting a very rigid structure and you find yourself suddenly talking to five different people, you might one day work on a project for someone and on the next day lead a project where they are working for you. And we see no problem in that. I got to imagine hiring the right person is very important for you in this structure, though. Yes. Any tricks? No tricks, just hard work and best practices. We reached a certain size, and we talked about this in our book. And then we looked around and we realized that we all look too much like each other. We needed to become more diverse. Bill and I a little around that time, I don't remember the exact chronology, we're at TED, we've been going to TED for a long time, and we listened to a speaker, and I forget her name, I apologize for this, but you can find the TED Talk, and she talked about being not colorblind, but color brave. And we decided that we needed to be much more aggressive in pursuing diversity. We have improved substantially, we have an incredibly long way still to go. Uh, We have a DEI committee, which is entirely composed of volunteers, and they helped analyze our hiring practices. We, the leader group, and they put together, uh, agreed on a set of practices, and we use them to hire. It means we're slower to hire. means we screen differently. Uh, We do have many people interview. We frequently have peer interviews. We firmly believe in talking to a variety of people and a variety of viewpoints. And then we have a lot of discussions. So we're not the quickest to hire. Before I leave this subject, what is your perfect hire? How would you describe your perfect hire? Smart, committed, high integrity. Not necessarily great at what we would like them to do, but with the capacity and commitment and desire to learn and grow. We don't believe that what any of us know today is adequate for the jobs we'll be doing five years down the road. We all must grow. We all must evolve. 
technology forces that. I view that as a wonderful thing. One of the things I say often to people is that one of the best gifts in life is when your job and your personal life come together to give you an opportunity to grow as a person. And I think the constant evolution of technology means that we have that opportunity all the time, those of us gifted, you know, gifted with the chance to work in tech. Because it is a gift to get to work in this field. I mean, it's incredible. That's one thing I've learned over time. One thing that uh, I struggle with is you often hear work-life balance, but now I've changed it to work-life integration. It's got to be integrated. If it's balance, one side or the other is going to take over, and it's usually the work side that overly consumes you, at least in my case. Pivoting back to the business, this is fascinating. You describe your company, though, as three things. Well, this is what I have. You correct me. World-class marketing learning and testing services. It's like a three-legged chair. That true? And yes. and why we've been talking about marketing, haven't said much at least about learning. We, well, we talked about testing probably more than anything, I guess. But where does the learning come in? It goes back to one of my favorite observations. I was at this uh, small conference called Competitive Marketing Summit run by a friend, Ben Shear, who's now at uh, Red Hat. At the time, he was at VMware. And he put up uh, in his presentation some slides. And one slide said, you must train sales. And then the next slide said, you, and then must, and then train, and then sales, and all combinations. And the point was to marketers that if you have not trained your sales force, it doesn't matter the quality of your product or your collateral, they will not be able to express to their audiences the values of your products you must train them and so we started thinking about sales enablement and training and how close they were then we realized something else which is at the heart of the way we market and you market everybody else markets and it is that we are all competing in the attention economy the absolute only thing you cannot make more of is time. You get 24 hours in your day and you're done. There's a little fractional second, you know, but basically you're 24 hours and you're done. Every day, every moment of that we talk to people, they are faced with an infinity of distractions. Are you going to talk to me? Are you going to look at your phone? Are you going to text home? Are you going to read an email from a boss? Are you going to watch a TV show? Are you going to watch a TikTok video? What are you going to do with those precious seconds? So when we create marketing, when our clients create training, when we create training, it's all competing for that most precious of resource. So we have to compete effectively or we are creating material that no one will consume. And that is at the heart of what we do. We believe that we help companies win in the attention economy. And that is by providing high value testing results with great marketing. And when they want it, sales enablement and other training that helps win and earn the attention. I like to use the phrase, earn, respect, reward. We have to earn your attention. We have to respect that you've given it to us by giving you what we promised you and we have to reward it by giving you something to take away from it. If we don't do those things, what have we done? In that line of thinking, does it happen in that order for your company? In other words, you start with the testing services, that'll manifest itself into world-class marketing, and then you'll drive learning to make sure everybody is aligned and can communicate said strategy and or the marketing uh, framework that you've outlined in a dream world maybe and it does sometimes but <laughs> if you think about this you start lines of business right conceptually those are three lines of business inevitably you want them all to grow so we have pure agency the pure marketing business where there are clients that we do work for under their brands that you would never know we did we're just an agency to them there are companies that we do work for that are pure learning courses unrelated to us. So I believe we are allowed to say this. Well, I, I will be careful. We have a major client where we did their key learning offerings on the opioid crisis that have been seen by thousands and thousands of people. And that has nothing to do with tech. 
but our learning team created that material. In uh, working with them, of course, it was a super great partnership. We never work just alone. You're always working with your clients. So anytime I say we did it, I'm being a little bit egotistical and a little bit sloppy because it's never just we, it's us and our clients. All and right, that's fair. I try never to shortchange their utter importance. We don't exist without our clients. And I wake up every day and try to remind myself to never forget that. What are your most predominant, as I would call them, use cases then? You talk about opioids. Is there anything off limits? I mean, what is in your sweet spot or is it is research your sweet spot such that uh, basically any topic is worth the discussion? So we don't we do research, but our primary thing is hands on we actually use the products. That's what differentiates us from, say, a Gartner or an IDC. Vastly bigger firms, great firms. Um, we love them. But what they don't do is go hands-on with technology. So our sweet spot is a vendor coming, a tech vendor coming into a space with a new product. It can be software, it can be hardware, it can be a cloud instance, it can be a server, it can be a client, you know, a new notebook, a, a tablet a new server and new cloud instance, and they believe they have certain advantages over competitors and we go and test it and find out the truth. But so where does opioids come in? That doesn't seem like uh, technology. It's not. We had some growth in our learning business and then to boost it, we did a small tuck-in acquisition of a local learning company. They brought a number of clients with them. That helped us diversify into a broader range of fields. And so to this day, we do a lot of things in healthcare, for example. When you're doing marketing, particularly in marketing technology, uh, and trying to articulate the competitive advantages that you're, you're talking about, I find that technology, you know, like going back to data, the data that we're talking about these days is just it's almost inconceivable for us to consume as humans. I was listening to another podcast. I'm a podcast junkie myself, even though I have one. And by example, it was talking about the U.S. deficit. It's like $29 trillion. Who can make sense of that? So then they try to put it in the what they call the power of one, where you make it personal. And then that money per citizen is something like 88000 per American. There's other examples like, we're dealing with Ukraine right now. They're like 233,000 square miles, size of Nevada. I can conceive that. COVID, you know, when we talk about, I thought, you know, the New York Times actually did something good where, you know, one death is a tragedy, but all of a sudden you get over a million and it becomes statistic because we can't put our head around it. What they did is they started putting names, age, and one fact for every person we lost to make that personal. I guess in all that data, what I'm trying to say is, and this is, you know, the podcast is making data simple, but these numbers are so huge. Technology, you even mentioned it like three or four times, it's changing so fast. You either manipulate that marketing so it makes sense or put it, you know, fairly into, I'm not saying it's unfair, but put it into fairly terms that people consume. How do you do that? I guess is my question. Uh, does that make sense? Absolutely. And you asked about our moat a while back. The ability to do this well is part of our moat. So what we do is we attack the challenge that you identified. You said it wasn't going to make sense, your question, but it made perfect sense, and you gave the answer in it. We have to turn these results into something relatable. So, for example, let's say that vendor A is coming out with a server, and they're comparing it to their offering of four years ago. They're trying to get you to upgrade your service. And they're able to say that on... OLTP order taking type workloads using say Microsoft SQL server, this new server across a set of VMs processes 10 times as many transactions per minute or transactions per second. So that's a number and we go, we find that number. We say to them, this is how much faster you are. But that's the beginning of the job, the communication job. Now what we have to do is turn that into something that makes sense to people. So we will use that base number, but then we will make it human relatable. We will explain what this means. It means that you can get rid of nine, 10 older servers and replace it with one. So you can save IT costs. You can save management. You can save software licenses. It means that a single website or set of stores can process a 10x growth without additional reinvestment and so on. We talk through what this kind of 
win means. And we make it relatable to the target audience. So that might be B2B, which is a very big part of what we do, it might be B2C. And that is the core of it, explaining it and making it relatable. Is that why, I mean, I was looking through my notes here. I mean, it's all coming into, um, you know, it's, it's coming more clear now. You, you, you Like you have a design lab, I think you said. We have a studio team. It's basically an agency inside. Are they designers? I mean, they're essentially looking to think differently, do some design thinking. So they come up with some of the antidotes that you just outlined. We have graphic designers. We have videographers. We have writers. We have a whole team of people. One of the beautiful things for me about this job is that I get to use all the parts of myself. I get to use the parts that care about communicating to people. And I get to use the tech nerd parts who still want to rush in and see when a new toy arrives, when a new piece of technology comes, I'm all excited about it. I get to indulge all of that in this business. It's a beautiful thing. Did you start on this endeavor or did you land in this endeavor? In other words, it does sound, if I go back to where we started, technologist, marketer, writer, spoken word performer. Often when people start businesses, you throw a dart at the wall and then you you take the target and move it to the dart. Did you hit it right off or did you move the dartboard? I think that if I could, I would be playing a hundred different games of darts simultaneously. <laughs> I have so many interests. I write science fiction novels. I publish five novels. People always talk about in science fiction about how if you had immortality, you'd be bored. And when I hear that, I think, are you insane? How can you possibly be bored in this world? I am never bored. I have so much more to do that I will never be able to accomplish that I do want to live forever. I have a in practical infinity of things I would like to accomplish. And so for me, it was, oh, this was interesting. Let's do this. This was interesting. Let's do that. I enjoy this. And oh, it pays some money. That's cool. I like that. And so it was really a mixture of staying in tech because I like the rate of change. I like the toys. And then just following things that are interesting. And in this case, in PT and growing into those the three-legged stool that you talked about, it was by doing the thing that I think we can never do too much of, which is listening to our clients. Every innovation we have ever come up with, our clients told us to do if we listened well. It always amazes me how badly I listen, no matter how hard I try. I need to get better and better and better. Despite being on a podcast and being somebody who likes to yak all the time, one of the greatest <laughs> lessons I keep learning every day is I need to talk less and listen more. Yeah, don't we all? Look, I can't tell you, you're giving me so much hope right now. You don't even know. I resemble some of those remarks. My issue is that I'm interested in like too many things. I'm like, yes. I don't like it play guitar right now. I want to go uh, climb uh, Kilimanjaro. You know, I mean, it's like, and a lot of times, you know, I feel like that's my downfall in that, you know, you see a lot of the folks that are very successful. It depends on how you define success, right? That's what my coach would tell me. And, you know, they're focused like Warren Buffett doing stocks every day, all day. That's all he does. Boom, read, 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 do more stocks. I just can't sit down for that long. I got to be doing all kinds of stuff. You're giving me hope, man. I completely agree with that. And you know what? I don't want that success. I'm doing fine on money. Could I be richer if I dedicated myself to that? Probably, maybe, I don't know, but I'm doing fine. I have so many passions. I'm a guy who flew to Spain for dinner once. I will say I am incredibly interested in the world and I find people fascinating, technology fascinating. It is I'm a lifetime rock and roll junkie. New great music is coming every day. And one of my favorite movies, The Boat That Rocked, as the boat is going down, the, an actor playing the character of the Count says, Philip Seymour Hoffman says, the, nothing dies here today. The only tragedy is not that we're going down. It is that in the years to come, there will be all of this great music and we will not be there to play it. And... Every day, new movies, new music, new books. You know, I'm a voracious reader. New technologies, new people. Learning more about the people you think you know. Just, I cannot imagine how we cannot be excited to be alive. I, it is a gift. It is an incredible gift. What movie is that? Now I got to watch that movie. 
Uh, the boat. It's called The Boat That Rocked. If you want to watch it, you want to watch the British version. In America, it was released as Pirate Radio. It's missing some time. Don't watch that one. Watch The Boat That Rocked. It's um, by the same guy who did uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Oh, that's one of my favorite. Four Weddings and, and a Funeral. Notting Hill. He wrote Notting Hill. And now I'm banking on his name. That's embarrassing. We have a lot in common, man. So look, Kate, we got to get Mark back on. He's fantastic. I've learned a lot. There's not enough time for everything. Uh, Anything, Kate, you think I I should ask? I know you're probably dying to ask something that I I didn't jump in on. I think this was a wonderful session. I am so gratified to once again have the pleasure of connecting good people together and hearing more amazing stories from Mark. I love talking to Mark. We've uh, been chatting for quite a while now, and it's just always an educational and inspirational experience to chat with you. So I look forward to having you back on our show. And I think, Al, we're going to have to wrap it up for today. Thank you. And Mark, anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have asked? No, I thank you for having me. I have talked to Kate many times and I come away from every conversation enriched and having learned something from her. And I learned a lot from you today and it was great to talk with you. And I'm just uh, happy to get to be on here and that somebody let me yak for a while, you know. (laughs) It's always fun, right? Just a couple more quick ones, a couple more because I can't stop. Favorite musical artist. I know if you're like me, it changes by day. But the first one that comes to mind right now. Okay, so in my opinion, Highly controversial. There is only one clear greatest rock and roll band of all time. Beatles. The Beatles. Yeah, the Beatles. I got it. And, and second place, clearly the second place best band of all time, Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band. Oh, man, you lose me there, though. I, I can't. And then past that, it's all up for debate. But what I'm listening to right now is a friend told me that I wasn't listening to enough rap and hip hop, which is absolutely true. So I'm listening to Jay-Z's Black Album because this friend gave it to me. And I'm listening to a Canadian band that I adore. I saw live in, when I was doing a gig in Toronto in 87 called Blue Rodeo. They have the odd distinction of having their first album, Outskirts, which is one of my top 10 Desert Island albums. It won in Canada Best Country, Best Rock, and Best Jazz Album all at once. Blue Rodeo. All right, that's a new one on me. I know. I'm with you on the Beatles 100%. I'm kind of one of those, probably the same... It's an easy answer, but man, they changed the world. Um, it, it, that's exactly it. Now, I could not even list all the music I love. I have a library built onto my house. I am still a person who likes to own CDs, I and I have over 10,000 CDs, so I am a music junkie. My kids are buying vinyl now. Isn't that awesome? I, it is. <laughs> I am now buying more vinyl. I'm back to buying more vinyl, yeah, too. That's terrific. All right, last thing. Give me one more mom story. Come on, you got one more mom story. Sure. All right. On my wedding night, (laughs) which is, I had a weird wedding. I had been with, am I still with my wife? Been with her since I was 17. We met when we were 15. Didn't get along at all because I was a, I'm not sure what words I'm allowed to say. So let's say I was a far worse word for jerk. And (laughs) at 17, I kind of got a little better. We'd been together. We were going to move in together for various reasons. It ended up being better for family relations to get married. So I came down from where I was living. She came down from where she was living. We were going to go back up to where I was going to grad school. So we got married in the morning, had a party in the evening, drove out. I stopped by my house to pick up some stuff. My mother comes out to the car. She says, Mark, Mark, where are you going? So I get out of the car. She comes up, puts the hand on the cheek. Sure thing. You'd think I'd know. All those years later, hand on the cheek. You'd think I'd know, but I didn't know. I look at her and she says, Mark. I go, yes, mom. She says, I just want you to know that if anything ever goes wrong in your marriage, and I'm thinking, you can come back home. It'll be great. I'll love you forever. She says, I'll know it's your fault. The horrible thing is, of course, she's correct. She's completely correct once again. But really, mom, this is it. I and like the I, that is a wise, honest mom. That's what you got to have, right? She, she was all that, but it wasn't always pleasant to be on the receiving side of that wisdom. You and I might have the same mother, too, I think. 
She was, she claimed five feet. She never touched it. She was the toughest human being I've ever known. She beat cancer three times. She raised three kids as a single mom. And I have, for anybody listening who's a single mom, nothing but respect and admiration and gratitude to you because I do not even understand how that works. I will always be dead impressed with her. Well, give it, give yourself some credit because from what I can tell, she's alive and well with all the stories you're, you're telling. That's fantastic, man. I think that's how we honor those we've lost. We tell their stories, we hold them in our heart and then they are not gone. Well, we'll have you back on because I want to hear some more mom stories of nothing. We, we may just have to have the whole time full of mom stories. Fantastic. I, I will tell you the next time about my mother and the Christmas presents. So <laughs> we'll save that for the future. All right. That gives me something to look forward to. Thank you, Mark, for being here. It's been a uh, an absolute pleasure. Kate, nice job of getting Mark on. Everybody that's listening, I hope you enjoyed our podcast today, Making Data Simple. Please rate us. Hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. And until next time, we'll see you on the podcast. See you all. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Out.